Our scripture reading this morning comes from Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. It can be found on page 775 in your church Bibles. My name is Jessel Newton, and I am a new member here at MPC. My husband and I host the seventh grade discipleship group in our home, and it is a great joy to do that. Let's turn to Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and a warm welcome to those worshiping here in McLean and Fairfax. My name is Nathan Newman, one of the assistant pastors here. It's a privilege to be together with you in God's word this morning in Jonah chapter three. Before we dive in, let's pray together. Mighty and merciful God, would you give to each of us this morning an expectancy Would you help us to lean in and to listen for you to speak through your word? For those of us who are sitting in complacency, would you confront us with your holiness? For those overwhelmed in brokenness, would you comfort us by your mercy? Holy Spirit, reveal our Savior to us this morning. Would you help us to see Jesus? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Finally, we get to the great miracle of the book of Jonah. I know you are saying to yourself, the repentance of Nineveh. Not the fish. The fish was interesting. Jonah in the belly of the fish and him vomiting on dry ground. That is spectacular. But I would contend with you that this miracle is an even greater surprise. This theme, repentance, it was a common theme in the minor prophets of which Jonah is one, but it was a theme that had long eluded the people of God. And so the fact that Israel's number one enemy, Assyria, is repentant in ways that not even 8th century Israel could be should completely shock us. It certainly would have to the original reader, because if you remember anything about these people, this is not just another non-Israelite nation. This is the ancient Near East's version of Hitler's SS. These are 
evil and violent people. And just to remind you where we are in the story, Jonah was told to go. He said no, but last week we saw that the failing fumbler has finally gotten back in the game. He's wiped off the vomit and is actually going to Nineveh to deliver God's message, just as he had told him for the first time. And so here in our text that overlaps with last week, we read Jonah's message and its impact. Here at the end of verse four, beginning of verse five, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. An unlikely story. Some have even compared this story to the Good Samaritan parable in the New Testament. Uh, Even some going so far to suggest that Jesus had this story in mind because it's the unlikeliest of recipients who respond to God's grace. And it's the likely ones, even the religious ones like Jonah and Israel who don't. And so the question that we want to look at together today is what does the book of Jonah teach us about repentance? And so we're going to look at three categories, a little roadmap for us along the way. If you're taking notes, the first is what not to do. The second is what to do. And then the third point, finally, why it matters. So the first point here, Jonah teaches us what not to do because he despairs and he dismisses God's word. If we remember back to chapter one, he was so upset that he would rather die than obey God because he couldn't imagine that God would extend his grace to this pagan nation, that he would save them, extend his mercy. So he was in great despair. He thought that he was better off dead. And maybe if you're sitting here this morning, you've been in a place similar to that, in despair, whether metaphorically or really ready to jump. We want you to know that there is hope and healing for you. So we encourage you to reach out. Story of despair Even if you feel like you can't get out of bed and know that it is a dark place, we want you to know that you are not alone. You don't have to feel weighed down by your guilt and shame. And so reach out. We'd love to help you in that process if despair is the way that you're responding to God's message. But another way that Jonah responds is to dismiss We see Jonah rose to flee in chapter one saying, God, I'll do anything but not that. Dismissing God's word. This, if we're looking at the nation of Nineveh on paper is what we would expect to see in their response. But the truth is what's often wrong with Jonah is wrong with us. We despair and we dismiss. So here are a few ways that we can dismiss God's word at times. Maybe we dismiss by defending. We don't like to receive feedback on our weaknesses or sin and tend to explain things away, only focusing on the successes in our life. Or maybe by faking, keeping up appearances, 
maintaining a respectable image because we care more about what people think about us, or maybe hiding or exaggerating or blaming or downplaying our sin. These are the ways that we often find ourselves dismissing God's message. So I wonder which of these most fits where you are. I know for me, if I hear that list of words, the hiding, the dismissing, downplaying, would be the places that I find my heart at times. But none of those ways describe repentance. There is a better way to respond to God's message. Not in despair, not to dismiss, but to do it to do what God has called us to, to repent. So that leads us to our second point, which is Nineveh teaches us what to do. Nineveh teaches us what to do. And so look with me, if you would, at verse five, pick up in the text, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. I love this verse here. There are three verbs. And just like the sailors in chapter one, verse five, these verbs really describe for us well the reaction of the Ninevites. They believed, they called, and they put on. And these verbs help us, I think, describe well the process or the stages of repentance. And so we're going to describe them, we'll call them first a change of heart, second a change of posture, and then a change of actions. So this is what to do, a change of heart. And so why did God warn Nineveh in the first place? It's a good question to ask ourselves. Because if God had simply intended to overturn the city, he could have done so without any advanced warning at all. The answer to that question is because God desired to change the heart of those who he was warning. That was the effect of this warning and change it did from the greatest to the least. The kingdom was overthrown, or another way to translate that would be was overturned but not in the way that Jonah would have expected. And this word that's translated overthrown here, one of my professors in seminary pointed out that it can have two meanings. The first was certainly on Jonah's mind that was destruction overturned. But the second was on God's mind that the people would have a change of heart. And we see that their heart was indeed changed. And the only way we can explain it is the way Jonah prays at the end of chapter two that salvation belongs to the Lord. We seem, it seems that Jonah's starting to get it near the end of that chapter, but as we'll see here in a moment next week as well, he just doesn't like the answer. In Jonah chapter four, verse two, he says, I knew it, God. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew that you would change their hearts, God. 
And just so you know, I'm not making this up. This is a consistent pattern in the Bible as well. In Jeremiah 24, verse 7, are these words, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. This change of heart. And we see this with our kids sometimes uh, when they're disobeying what God does here. He counts one, two, Three, that's the reason why he is warning here is so that they would change their ways. Now, of course, every illustration uh, is, is never complete. Uh, we can't change our kids' hearts the way that God can change the hearts of the people that he is giving his grace. But the point is that that's the intent of all of the prophecy in the Bible. When we see this delay of God's judgment, it's so that he can extend his grace to them. And now the commentators do disagree on the genuineness of the Ninevites' faith. But as James taught us last week, the plain reading of the text seems pretty clear to me. It says that they believed God. And so could there have been mixed motives along the way? Sure. But it seems to me that there is a genuine conversion among at least some of the Ninevites. And don't just take my word for it. Look at Luke chapter eleven thirty-two. a little bit later this afternoon. Jesus, in his own words, seems to, to highlight and contrast the faithful repentance, the faithful changing of hearts of the Ninevites in contrast to the hard hearts of the Pharisees. So this reorientation begins, this repentance begins with a change of heart. And it's God who does it because there's no other way we can explain this miracle. But it doesn't stop there with just a change of heart. Something happens internally, yes, but something begins to happen externally as well in their posture. Look at verses five through seven. It says, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And the word had reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robes and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. So Nineveh teaches us that we need a change of heart. Second thing Nineveh teaches is we need a change of of posture. This word here in verse seven, the crying out or the proclamation, going public with our repentance is a way of fighting against our tendency to dismiss, fighting against our tendency to hide or to fake or to downplay our sin. It's a way to admit our brokenness to those around us. And we actually believe that That is a good thing to do. Uh, In her research, author Brene Brown, who is a self-proclaimed shame expert, has found that the less we talk about shame, the more control it has over our lives. But the converse is also true. 
the more we talk about our brokenness, the less control it has over our lives. And we see that here, that it didn't just change their hearts, it begins to orient their bodies as well. Their heart change leads to an incredible humility. They put on sackcloth as a sign that their hearts were undergoing real change. Now I imagine that any of us would be horrified to be seen in sackcloth, but that is for another time. But if you notice here, the text goes on. In verse six, it says the king sat in ashes. Isn't that interesting? One of my friends from a different tradition reminded me that Ash Wednesday is coming up. Many Western Christians mark the first day of Lent by placing ash on their foreheads as a public display of their need for repentance and for the love of Christ. So we see that this is an incredibly humbling thing for the king to do. And then in verse seven and eight, we get that hilarious detail that even the animals cried out. Did you see that? They are, in in verse seven and eight, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything, so they're fasting. Let them not feed or drink water, but let them be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. What is up with that? That is so bizarre. The, The closest answer that I think we can give is that one of the main points of the book of Jonah is that everyone is responding properly to God except for the prophet Jonah himself, including the fish and the animals. And so what's the point for us? We could use a few more people in this town who are willing to display publicly humility, repentance. And by the way, if you are thinking about someone else right now, you've missed the point of Jonah. (laughs) Because the point is repentance starts with you and it starts with me. And so the question we need to be asking ourselves is how can my posture this week at work or at home display the grace that we have in Jesus? The third stage of repentance is a change of actions. A change of actions. We need a change of heart, a change of posture, but it's incomplete without a change of actions. And we see here that change is twofold. It's both communal and it's personal. So look at verse eight. It says, let everyone turn from his evil way. So the communal part is the everyone. So underline everyone there. But you see, it's not just communal, it's personal as well. Let everyone turn from his evil way. So underline that too, because we see in this text and throughout history, what can happen when nations and individuals corporately and personally begin to repent in this way. It has the power to transform a society. 
One of my favorite stories of this transformation is a story about miners in Wales. Both of my grandfathers were coal miners in Kentucky and they loved telling mining stories. And this story is about a revival in the 1900s in Wales when nearly a fifth of the country became Christians and came into the church. And at that time, uh, if you know what was going on, there was tremendous labor problems and they could often get violent as well. My dad, I asked him about some picket lines growing up and he said that his dad would bring his motorcycle helmet and bat to these picket lines at these union uh, marches. And that was in the 60s and 70s, let alone in the early 1900s in Wales in much worse conditions. And yet what happened in Wales is all of these labor union problems started to go away because there was a reconciliation that started to happen between the managers and between the union workers who were once bitter enemies. The mining workers started working harder, became more conscientious, One report that I read even said that the pony boys who took care of the the cart horses started caring uh, for their animals with more dignity and respect. And on company time, managers started to sponsor these Bible studies deep into the bowels of the earth, two miles underground where they would read the Bible and sing God's praises. And you know what happened? all of those miners started to bring back the things that they had stolen over the years. See, the mines own everything in a company town, and so there was usually one tool shed where they kept all of their tools, and miners had been stealing them throughout the years. What happened when the word impacted these miners is that they started bringing them back, so much so that the mines had to build an extra five sheds per town just to take all of the tools back that the miners were bringing. It's an amazing story to see how repentance can change families. It can change cities and even a whole country. The unlikely recipients of God's grace show us how to respond First, by a change of heart. Second, a change of posture. And third, a change of actions. But our next point is, why does it matter? Third and finally, why does repentance matter? Repentance matters because in this picture, in this story, we see a picture of God's love for all humanity of God's graciousness, of his mercy that is extended to everyone, that this is a better way of life for here and for eternity. And the king and the people understood their need for God's grace and mercy. And so here's the good news for Nineveh and for North Dakota and for Northern Virginia is that God doesn't desire destruction, but he does desire redemption and reconciliation for those who would turn to him. 
I love the way one commentator put it. Nineveh's repentance and God's merciful response to it is a wonderful encouragement to throw oneself onto God's mercy, which is offered in full accord with his justice on the basis of Christ's cross work. So are you in despair? Are you dismissing God's mercy? Throw yourself on him and he will show you compassion. Their question in verse nine, who knows what will happen? We, we have the answer, we know. And they too would soon find out as well. In verse 10, when God saw what they did, they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them and he did not do it. See, this sparing of Nineveh parallels the experience of every Christian. Because although we were spared, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up so that we might be able to be forgiven in Jesus. This is our story. We are fallen and subject to the judgment of a holy God, but Jesus on our behalf took on God's wrath as our substitute in order that we might experience this miracle of redemption, in order that we might have new hearts and new obedience. The question we need to ask ourselves this morning is how will we respond? How will we respond? Will we respond like Jonah? Or will we respond like the Ninevites? Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that you are a God who calls us out, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You care enough to count much higher than three in order that we might have the time to turn and repent. And you desire not just change in our city, but in our hearts as well. And so would you help us to believe that this power can happen anywhere, to any family, to any place, even here, even us. Thank you for Jesus who bore the wrath that we deserved in order that we might walk in joyful obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.